So this evening I'd like to reflect on the, the theme, the quality of spaciousness. <laughs> now you've probably gathered by now that we give a tremendous value, a tremendous weight to the kind of attitude that we bring to our meditation practice. And in a, certainly in my understanding, mindfulness is not attitudinally neutral. That wise mindfulness has built within its fabric many of the qualities that we aspire to. Kindness, compassion, sensitivity, and spaciousness. So that is the quality that I'd like to explore this evening because I think it makes all the difference in our practice. And to start with, I'd like to read you something from the Bhagavad Gita. It's a very ancient uh, Hindu text. It says it teach us that even as the wonder of the stars in the heavens only reveals is only revealed in the silence of the night, so too the wonder of life reveals itself in the silence of the heart. In the silence of our hearts we may see the scattered leaves of all the universe bound by love. And if I could just take some literary license here and paraphrases slightly to fit in with the talk I want to give and change the words slightly. It says, teach us that even as the wonder of the stars only reveals itself in the vastness of the sky, the heavens, so too does the wonder of this life reveal itself only in the spaciousness of our heart. In the spaciousness of our heart we may see the scattered leaves of all the universe connected and liberated by love and by understanding. Now you will probably hear us over over these days of the retreat speaking often about spaciousness and that it is really this sense of spaciousness, inner spaciousness, which makes room for everything. It's what allows all things in our bodies, our minds, our hearts to arise and to pass, to be seen without being held so tightly to. We will speak about, in many ways, the very profound sense of ease and calm of spaciousness and its kindness the kindness of touching all things with that lightness of touch, that spaciousness of heart. So speak about spaciousness as something that we bring to the moment. It's the what, what we surround everything with. It is a very particular way of holding the dynamics, the realities of our bodies, our minds, our hearts, everything that appears. But it's also that spaciousness that really allows us to see beneath the surface of things and to lay down the, the burden of the arguments that we have with ourselves and with life 
the arguments we have with our bodies, the arguments we have with our minds. Now, when we hear the word spaciousness, many people tell me that they really feel quite strongly attracted to the idea of spaciousness. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a very good idea. We would all love to feel more spacious. And especially in the moments when we can feel so contracted, so uh, lost within these tight circles of thinking, and reactivity, spaciousness certainly feels very desirable. But we can also feel quite puzzled by the word. What does it mean? What does spaciousness look like? And more importantly, how do we get it? You know, how do we get there? And hopefully that's what I'd like to talk about tonight. So first, briefly, without dwelling on it overmuch, I really want to make the distinction between spaciousness and spaciness. You know, because spaciousness is not formless, it's not shapeless. Spaciousness is not wandering around in a kind of diluted, dull fog of perception and distraction. And that's what I call spaciness. You know, that we just don't know where we are. We don't know what's going on. You know, that sense of feeling ungrounded. And I think that sense of spaciness, you know, we can sometimes just know too well. And it's actually pretty unpleasant. You know, it's actually, it it is unpleasant. It's unpleasant feeling to have this sense of being so governed and actually just kind of pushed around by whatever thought or mental state or emotional event is predominant in the moment. It's just that's the sense of being lost, of being confused. I'd also suggest spaciousness is not an it. It's not some kind of experience to be that we strive for. It is actually about changing the lens of how we see, how we attend, how we are present in all the changing moments of our lives. And that is why this sense of spaciousness is so integral to the development of mindfulness. Because it's not just look, you know, mindfulness is not just looking at life through the same old habitual lens of likes and dislikes, of reactivity, of preferences. It is about changing the lens, and it is that changing of the lens that actually brings a transformative quality to mindfulness. So it's a way of seeing, but it is also a cultivation. Because that changing of the lens to really kind of learn to put down or see beneath the reactivity, changing that lens actually really has a very immediate effect upon our minds and upon our lives. Because it's what brings or begins to cultivate that sense of balance and poise, the groundedness You know, of just not being swept away by all of the inner and outer events of life. And not being swept away, that's what gives the freedom of responsiveness. 
rather than reactivity. The freedom of responsiveness where we are fully connected with where we are, seeing it in the moment, seeing freshly, able to respond to what those events need. I actually sense that spaciousness, as we begin to cultivate it, as we begin to know that landscape of spaciousness, it actually doesn't really feel like some alien state. It actually does feel like the most natural way to be in this world. And it's really not about what we get, it's often about what falls away. It's often about what falls away. Now, I'll read you a, maybe, it's a little bit of a long story. I'll try to praise you a little bit. This is about this falling away. The poor man had come to the end of his rope, so he went to his rabbi for advice. Holy rabbi, he cried, things are in a bad way with me and getting worse all the time. We're so poor that my wife, my six children, my in-laws and I all live in a one-room hut. We get in each other's way all the time. Our nerves are frayed and we quarrel. Believe me, my home is a hell. The rabbi pondered the matter gravely. My son, he said, promise to do as I tell you and your condition will improve. I promise, rabbi. The man answered, I'll do anything you say. So I said, tell me, what animals do you own? And the man answered, I have a cow, a goat, some chickens. Very well, said the rabbi, go home, bring all the animals into your house. The poor man was dumbfounded. But since he'd promised the rabbi, he went home and he brought all the animals into the one-room hut. The following day, of course, the poor man returned to the rabbi and cried, Rabbi, I have no idea what you're doing. (laughs) You know, what misfortune you brought upon me. I did as you told me, brought the animals into the house, and now what have I got? Things are worse than ever. My life is a perfect hell. The house has turned into a barn. Save me, Rabbi. My son replied the Rabbi serenely, Go home, take the chickens out. God will help you. So the poor man went home, took the chickens out, but not long again came running to the Rabbi. Holy Rabbi, well, save me. The goat's smashing everything in the house. She's turned my life into a nightmare. Go home, said the rabbi gently. Take the goat out. God will help you. So again, the man did as he was told, but not a moment passed before he was running to the rabbi, lamenting loudly. Rabbi, the cows turned my house into a stable. How can you expect a human being to live side by side with an animal? You're right, a hundred times right, agreed the rabbi. Go straight home and take the cow out of your house. And so the man did, took the cow out. And again, the next day, came to the rabbi. Rabbi, cried the poor man, his face beaming. You've made my life sweet again for me. With all the animals out, the house is so quiet, so roomy, so clean. What a blessing. So what do we allow to fall away? to make more spaciousness. What do we allow to fall away? Now I want to give you a few other examples of spaciousness. Maybe some clues, maybe some pointers. If you, when you walk into this room or any room, 
Notice how your attention seems to be almost automatically drawn to all of the things in the room. You know, you see the Buddha statue, the cushions, the curtains, the people. And you notice with perception, of course, how the world of the waterfall of preferences, of likes and dislikes, of arguments, of being for and against begin to arise. They're stimulated by perception. This is true throughout our lives. Now, suppose you walked into the room and you made just a slight adjustment in the lens, the focus, and you made the intention actually to notice the space in the room. The space that surrounds and makes room for all of the things in the room to be here. Now, the space in the room doesn't actually have any argument with any of the cushions or the people or the colors or any of the perceptions. And the space in the room is not even confined by these walls. It's the same space on the other side of the walls. Now, in the meditation practice, sometimes we suggest that you take your attention to listening, <coughs> to hearing. And now, again, notice, if we give that instruction, how almost automatically we begin to look for something to listen to. You know, we begin to look for the sound. There has to be a sound. And usually we'll find some. And again, the same process with that perception begins. You know, we like some sounds. We don't like others. Some we wish they'd stay. Others we wish they'd go. Now, again, what it would be like to listen without seeking a sound. And, of course, some people say, well, that makes no sense to listen without having something to listen to. But also maybe it does, just to rest in the listening without preferences, to sense the silence from which sounds arise from and fall back into. And again, the silence has no argument with any of the sounds. Makes room for the rooks, makes room for the garbage trucks. Uh, We sometimes give the meditation the encouragement to be mindful of breathing, you know. And again, as we mentioned yesterday, you don't have to try to breathe. Breathing happens. There's an in-breath, there's an out-breath and a pause. But even today, you may have noticed how you can tie yourself up in knots of argument and struggle in just being mindful of breathing. You know, is it the right way to breathe? You know, is it a good enough breath? Is it big enough? Is it too shallow? You know, where is that part? You know, you get into such a tizzy about it. But we can also learn to rest in the pauses, to rest in the breathing, to let the breathing breathe itself. Trungpa Rinpoche was a rather well-known Tibetan teacher of the past. He once came into a meditation room like this, and he held up this very large piece of light blue paper, and then he encouraged everybody to associate around it. And after a while, he asked people what they thought it was, and there was this kind of consensus, ah, it was the sky. It was a picture of the sky. 
Then he drew a notch on the side, a, a, a V on the side, on the, in the midst of the paper. And he again encouraged people to associate around it. What was this? And again, many people seemed to agree that it was a bird. And as she said, that's not actually right. It's the sky with a bird in it. It's the shift in the lens, the shift in the focus. So let's reflect for a moment on the nature of our minds today. Now, it is true for many people that the mind often feels very full, too full. You know, and you may have noticed that today in the moments when you weren't asleep. This sort of waterfall, this tsunami of, of memories, images, preoccupations, thoughts, it feels bottomless. Now, how did you know that? How did you know that? What allows you to know that? It's mindfulness. It's awareness. That's the capacity to see, to know. Now, you probably also notice today how very easy it is to get drawn into the contents of the thoughts. How we build upon thoughts, how we isolate certain thoughts, how we get into arguments with other thoughts. Now, what, or even just conceive of this, what would it be like to step back from the busyness and actually just to rest in the seeing, in the knowing, in the mindfulness, in the awareness that has no preferences, just as the space in the room doesn't have any preferences about green cushions versus blue cushions? If we can step back into the seeing, into the mindfulness, what we see is that thoughts and ideas and memories, like all things, arise and fall, appear and disappear. They do not actually have a momentum of their own. Now that's stepping back into the seeing. That's what we call spaciousness. The sense of ease, the sense of stillness, that sense of not holding anywhere. But it's a very expansive sense. It's very inclusive. It's very present. Now, spaciousness, I would say, on one hand, is a cultivation born of understanding its opposite. And the opposite of spaciousness is what I would call contractedness. And I want you to get maybe a little bit used to that word because you will certainly be able to relate to it in your own experience. The sense of contractedness. Spaciousness, I would also say, is a cultivation of immediacy. You don't have to be an expert meditator to discover spaciousness. Actually, you need to remember it. You need to remember about it. To know that in any moment, if we can remember about changing the lens, we find ourselves increasingly able, be, being able to shift from being lost in the particulars and contents of experience to the sense of spaciousness around particular contents, uh, particulars and contents. And I'm going to give you a lot of examples of this. 
We can do this in any moment now. It's a practice. Now, okay, so here's an example. You sit today and a thought arises. Now, it might be a thought that's charged with quite a bit of, of feeling of emotion. It might be a thought about an argument you've had with your partner before you came here or, you know, some difficult thought. Now, you can see that thought is not a neutral thought. It is charged with feeling, it's charged with memory, it's charged with anxiety. It has a history. Now, you can see in those charged thoughts the inclination to just immediately feel caught, immediately feel imprisoned, to become lost. Now, it's not intentional. You know, we don't get up in the morning and say it's a fantastic day to be obsessive, you know, or fantastic day just to get lost in difficult thinking. There's nothing intentional about it. It's a habit. It's a habit. It is a habit that begins with association, begins with building a world upon a thought. Now, we see this on a very personal level in our own minds and experience, but of course we also see, those of you who work in in more clinical or therapeutic situations, see how much distress this causes in people's lives and minds. This sense of being so imprisoned in habitual thoughts that are charged with memory, history, and association because they go round and round and round and round. Now, notice, this is very important to notice, that when, and, and, and you know, we're, we're the, the lab here, you know, we're the lab for all minds. <laughs> you know. So notice that when we get caught in a difficult thought process, how all of our other sense doors and sensory awareness begins to disappear. Like you'll notice, you could be sitting there quite present, but you know, some really juicy thought comes along. And if you notice how pain disappears, it's like your whole body almost has disappeared. If you notice how sound, hearing, fades, disappears, all of the other sense doors begin to fade away because your world is actually being shaped and formed by the imprisonment in that thought at the moment. Now, the reclaiming of spaciousness The reclaiming of spaciousness is about reconnecting with everything that has begun to disappear. It is much more the conscious, intentional reconnecting with the body, reconnecting with listening. If you're walking, reconnecting reconnecting with seeing. Now, it's not that the difficult thought then has disappeared, but the difficult thought is arising in the whole of the landscape of the moment. Rather than consuming the landscape of the moment, the landscape of the moment is actually holding the difficult thought. We've changed the lens. We've changed the lens of how we are seeing, how we are holding that. Now, again, you know, we sit and... Sounds, of course, are there. Sounds arise, pleasant and unpleasant sounds. But notice if you isolate or fixate on a sound, again, this contract 
affecting, narrowing of awareness begins to happen. You know, perhaps it's the sound of a bird. I mean, this kind of contractedness is not always featuring the unpleasant. We can contract around the pleasant, too, you know. So maybe a sound arises. You know, you've been sitting there quite peaceful, you know, quite steady. Suddenly your attention's caught by a sound. And when you can see that that kind of glomming on, it's, it's a very kind of sophisticated word, isn't it? Glomming on to the sound, this contracting, this isolating, how we begin to build the world. Oh, it's a bird. I wonder what kind of bird that is. You know, next time I come on a retreat, I'm bringing my bird book. You know, you know, maybe I bring my binoculars too. You know, and I wish I had access to a computer. I could kind of look up the sound of that bird. I could identify with it. You know, and this whole world has been created. It could be an unpleasant sound. We're sitting or walking. A truck drives up the driveway. You know, actually, it's a sound. You know, but again, you can see the moment that the attention begins to isolate, begins to contract around that sound. You know, it's a garbage truck. Who allowed trucks up this driveway? And it's a meditation center. They really shouldn't allow trucks. You know, I'd have guards on the gates. I'm going to build a gate. And you can feel the whole world. And notice when that happens that there is that shrinking of vision. That's what's happening. There's a shrinking of vision, and there's really a sacrifice of spaciousness. Now, what we are experiencing in that moment is what I call contractedness. The process of contracting. It's a sacrifice of spaciousness, and I think it's very important to get a felt sense of this. Because this can happen countless times in a single day that we get lost in this feeling of contractedness. And when we're really caught in it, you notice how helpless we can feel that there's no way out of this. So if it can feel like there's nothing I can do, I'm just caught in this, I'm helpless. But to find the way out of contractedness is so important that we understand the ways that we got in. So to get the felt sense of contractedness, how it's often this permeated by a sense of anxiety, of tension, of resistance, of fear, it's really important to get a sense. I mean, sometimes the contractedness can be, as I say, built around something pleasant, so it can even feel sort of entertaining. You know, like when we're lost in one of those fantasies, you know, or building up this huge romantic future with somebody we've never even met. You know, it can actually feel kind of like really kind of pleasant. But mostly it's suffering because the actual feeling of contractedness is painful. But it's also important to get the felt sense of spaciousness. Because in many ways, that's the direction of our practice. It's where we're going. It's what we're cultivating. Get the felt sense of that allowing, inclusiveness, receptivity. It's also, I would mention, very important not to be dualistic, not to imagine that spaciousness is dependent upon annihilating thought. You know, not dependent upon annihilating the mind. Because it's certainly not. What we are learning to let go of in the cultivation of spaciousness is this tendency of being pushed and pulled by one event after another. And we could say that every moment of contractedness is in reality a doorway to spaciousness. 
Now, in exploring contractedness, it's very, it's very critical to understand that, you know, there isn't any blame here. You know, it's, it's kind of like there's no blame in getting caught in the dramas, in the fabrications, in the events, in the thoughts. It can feel like a dream. You know, have you ever woken up from one of those mind storms, you know, and you sort of look back and you think, like, what was that all about? You know, what was that all about? And it can feel like a dream, you know, and sometimes it can feel in our life like the waking up is just sort of an accident. But here we cultivate intentional waking up from the dream. And we cultivate the intentional waking up from those feelings of contractedness. Sometimes it takes a while. You know, sometimes it does take some time. But waking up for most of us involves, and John was speaking about this this afternoon when he was speaking about the rain, talked about the non-self, but it's also about the non-identification. The non-identification. And I think most of us, you know, waking up from the dream or sometimes the nightmares of contractedness really involves acknowledging that to cling to anything at all is instantly to increase the amount of torment and pain in our lives. Now, we experience this personally. We experience it with people that we work with. That identification, the I am, this contractedness, is the ma- one of the major causes of distress. Now, this was very central, has always been very central in Buddhist teaching. This, this softening of identification, you know, the softening of the I am. It's always been one of the Buddha's major pointers to the, a sense of liberation inwardly. And the Buddha put it very in a very few words when he said about his teaching, <laughs> that's this practice, nothing at all should be clung to as me or mine. Nothing at all should be clung to as me or mine, including the thoughts, the emotions the events of the body, and that to know that deeply is to instantaneously increase the felt sense of spaciousness in the moment. I want to give you an example of this. In my my garden, um, you know, ever since I've lived there, I've had this beautiful silver birch tree growing. It was huge. It was a, a massive remarkable specimen of silver birch tree that I actually cared very strongly about. And of course, they came not very long ago where I was told that it had to be cut down because it was doing things that trees do, you know, roots in water pipes and all that kind of stuff. And the moments, the the instant that person told me this tree had to be cut down, I, I found myself going into this major inner snit you know, like no way, <laughs> just just no way. I mean, it wasn't even up for discussion. It was just this absolute refusal. You know, no way, no way. And I could immediately see uh, the suffering that came with that. 
fortunately, it it didn't last that long, you know, because I could really see, you know, really saw hole through it, you know, like my tree was actually my suffering. They weren't separate. You know, as long as it was my tree, it was my suffering. So fortunately, as I say, it didn't last too long. And, you know, of course, it was incredibly sad. This tree had to come down. But what I could see in myself was this shift from contractedness to spaciousness. And I also, in the Buddhist tradition, that would be called a shift from wrong view to wise view. That's what it would be called in this teaching, shift from wrong view to wise view. Now, the wrong view was, you know, this should never happen. You know, it's my tree. You know, the tree is the gatekeeper of my happiness. My entire well-being depends on this tree staying there forever. This tree should be exempt from impermanence. Everything else in life is allowed to change, but not this tree. You know, that's what we call wrong view. (laughs) It's immediately suffering. It's immediately suffering. Now, the shift into wise view, of course, is to recognize the sadness of many changes, to recognize the sadness in loss, but to recognize, actually, it never really was my tree. The tree grew. And, of course, mostly to recognize that the tree did not hold the intrinsic authority to determine my well-being and happiness and freedom that for the tree to be the gatekeeper of my happiness was dependent upon the authority that I gave to it. And I gave that authority to it basically through clinging. So all the time in our practice and our life, that's the kind of shift we're making, you know, from wrong view to wise view, from contractedness to spaciousness, to be aligned with the way things actually are rather than in a state of contention and argument with the way things are. Now, one way of seeing our life is like a flow, like a river of causes and conditions. Now, many of these causes and conditions began long before we were ever born and they will continue long after our death. Now, in truth, our life is an event. I mean, sometimes people don't like to hear this. Our life is an event born of countless other events, beginning with our birth, ending with our death. I mean, and this event of our life, of course, is precious, as all lives are precious. But we tend to mark, within this event of our life, we tend to make all these markers, you know, of other events, the things that make us happy, the things that make us unhappy. Gain, loss, achievement, failure, pleasure, pain, illness, health, moments of excitement, moments of fear, moments of trust, moments of betrayal, the things we choose to do, the things we choose not to do. Our mind is often full of all the events that have actually passed and full of all the events that is yet to come. And you notice how preoccupied we get with these events. If you look at your mind now or in the last sitting, it seems actually in this life there is almost limitless ground for obsession. 
In the Tibetan tradition, there's a saying that says preoccupation or obsession really doesn't end until the moment we die. But the preoccupations end when we put them down, that this is their nature. And that's actually what we're learning to do in the practice. To put down the preoccupations, because the preoccupations consume space. So, wise understanding is to see that in this flow of conditions we call our life, there's also limitless ground for spaciousness. It all depends on how we hold it, how we understand it. Now, what is it something that calls an event? Let's look at causes and conditions. Let's look at the weather. Sometimes it's easier to see this externally. Today, you know, this glorious, sunny delightful day. You know, it didn't arise out of nowhere, did it? Nobody made it happen. Causes and conditions came together in a certain way that allowed for the day we had today. Tomorrow, those causes and conditions could change. It could rain. It would be a different set, a different configuration of causes and conditions coming together in a certain shape. This is happening every moment, not just externally, but also internally. You know, today you may feel really well. Tomorrow, causes, conditions could change. You might feel unwell. It's not like it's your fault. It's not like you made that happen. Causes and conditions are endlessly changing. Many of them are outside of our control. That can be a hard one to embrace. That we are not in control of all of the causes and conditions in our life. And it doesn't mean that we're a failure when conditions don't fit the way we want them to be. But we are also not helpless. I mean, I think part of the wisdom of mindfulness is recognizing that we are not helpless. You know, there's a a discourse where, where this person came to the Buddha, you know, and he said, you know, is everything that happens in my life, you know, my karma... You know, he was kind of using this word karma as kind of like my fault. You know, some sort of destiny. And the Buddha said, no, not everything in your life is your karma. He says, things happen in your life for so many different reasons. He says, there's bile, there's phlegm, there's blood. You know, there's all these different things. And he says, and at the end, there's karma. You know, so it's recognizing that we are just not always in control. You know, if you step outside the door and get hit by a drunken driver, that's not your karma. You know, it's not like it's your fault. It's not like you're to blame. You know, you just happen to be there in these conditions completely outside of your control. But we're not helpless. That is the other, you know, the wisdom of mindfulness recognizes how we are not in control of everything. But it also recognizes that does not imply we are helpless because you can see that this whole path is actually about not being helpless. It's actually about finding a sense of direction. It's about sensing what it's possible to cultivate, what it's possible to let go of. It's actually reclaiming almost a kind of sense of empowerment, I think, Now, spaciousness or contractedness is not about the number of events in our lives. 
It's about how we respond or react to those events. Now, if we're quite honest, and I I think it's often sort of quite embarrassing to acknowledge this, but mostly we do see ourselves as being the center of the world. It's a hard one to move out of. Either I'm making everything happen or everything is happening to me. And it's, it's hard to make that shift of not quite seeing ourselves as the center of the world because that's actually what clinging is all about, isn't it? It's about trying to control how things happen to me or don't happen to me. Eh? But it's sort of about kind of being the center of the universe. Now, it's hard to conceive of not being that way because we also think, well, you know, if I wasn't the center of the universe, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning, you know, and I, I wouldn't do anything. But that's actually a whole other discussion. But. Now, what is very important to understand, and this is maybe a bit much for the first night talk, but it's very important to understand that my sense of me is an event that arises in relationship to other events moment to moment. You know, a sad thought arises, I'm sad. A happy thought arises, I'm happy. You know, a pain arises in the body, I'm the sufferer. A difficult sound appears, I'm the one who's defensive. Now notice that (coughs) shifting throughout the day. This is actually not complicated. But it's actually just seeing how much this this sense of selfing is an event that arises in relationship to other events. Now, usually the events that are clung to, that's what selfing is, it's clinging. It's not I'm clinging. Selfing is clinging. Now, that is, those events happen by isolating certain configurations of conditions. And when we do cling, there is a forgetfulness about spaciousness. If I give you another example about this. Okay, we're here on retreat. There's not many big events on the day. You know. And the biggest events in the day on a retreat tend to be meal times Because you know, there's really not that much else to get excited about. Okay. So, lunch happens, okay? Lunch happens. Let's, let's think about it. It's a big event in a retreat. You know, and, you know, when there's not much else happening, yeah, a little excitement about it maybe, or you know, a little anticipation. You know? So, you get, you know, the bell goes, you get in the lunch line, and guess what? Serving something you really, really hate. Now, you can feel the response arising. You know, the unhappiness, the unhappy self, you know. And notice how that creates time, past, present, future. You lean back into the past. You remember all the miserable meals you've eaten in your entire life. You know, you lean into the future. You imagine all this long procession of future miserable lunches, all week long, yet to be had. You imagine all the unhappiness that is going to happen. What comes next? It sometimes says in this practice, there really is no next. There really is no next. 
The next is the, is the fabrication we're imagining. And we can also feel in that whole event this contractedness. And we can also remember about spaciousness. So another example. You ever found yourself sitting, you know, and sometimes you're convinced we've gone to sleep up here, you know, and know the schedule said 45 minutes, feels like you've been here for hours, you know, <laughs> and you find yourself kind of looking, this surreptitious looking at your watch, you know, about like how much time is really I have to suffer through. Now, we are imagining a better next or a worse next, depending on how much time is left. Now, we can, and really what's going to happen, you know, when the bell goes? Guess what? It's not a different mind. You know, it's actually not a different body. It's just that the bell has gone. Hmm? Now, we can do that, or also we can just relax. We can just relax, not be imagining the next... Just relax. You notice the moment you get sucked into the, the clock watching, the counting of the minutes, you know, feel the contractedness of that. Feel the contractedness of that. Notice if you can breathe out, you can just relax. You're remembering the possibility of spaciousness in that moment. And every time we do that, you know, we actually bring the goal and the path to it together. Because we actually start to live the life that we wish to live. We actually start to live the calmness we wish to live. We actually start to, to live the peace we wish to live. We start to live the spaciousness we long for. It's all about changing the lens, relaxing into what is, being inclusive of all things. We could say that mindfulness, in a way, is almost the art of resting in this eventlessness amidst all the changing conditions of our lives. Hmm? Learning to attend is the forerunner of spaciousness. Being present, being mindful of the mind, beginning to calm some of those layers of agitation and restlessness that are the forerunners of contractedness, beginning to expand our view. Expand our view. Change the lens. When we begin to expand our view, to have more of that sense of spaciousness, really we see the heart of this teaching. You know, that not just about mindfulness, but about understanding, about the Four Noble Truths, about what suffering is, about what distress is, about how it is caused in this moment through this contracting, clinging, about the end of suffering, about the opening, the including, the alignment, the state of non-argument with what is. So much, you know, is outside of our control. Bodies get sick. Minds can be distracted, hearts can be broken, but we also start to see how the forces of, of resistance and craving, insistence that this moment must be other than it is, how that is actually far more suffering than the events in our lives, which can be sad, which can be difficult, but the torment that is born of the argument and we can learn to relax that. 
I want to end, I want to read you something by Ajahn Chah because I, I think he really kind of captures this sense of, of spaciousness. He says, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. The world will come and go in that stillness. This is the happiness of a Buddha.